Frederick Proofs Film Club as we once again convene for this summer's classic from 1988 by Ron Shelton, Bull Durham. Hooray! Thank you for being the few and the proud, the hardcore, and those who care enough to join us here for a summertime movie on a night that's most pleasant out. We should all be outside drinking wine right now, and if there's any justice, we will be in just a couple of short hours. Thank you. That's been our show. Let's get this movie going. Uh, no. The, uh, this, I'm very proud for several reasons. One, of course, is uh, uh, I made, I wrote and directed this movie. And secondly, <laughs> no, this was my choice this week. And uh, I'm always excited when I get to pick a movie. Jennifer often has been picking the selections for like the last year and a half. And uh, I finally got a couple in in a row. So it's, uh, I consider that a... Uh, a personal film triumph and not only that that she likes both these movies and has seen them and we watched them together so hooray for me uh, anyway so this movie uh, is not a, it, the motif is baseball the genre is uh, I don't know what you'd say sports movie romantic comedy I, I detest the words rom-com and I particularly detest the words chick flick I can't think of anything more horrible does that make every other film that's ever been made which is every other film that's ever been made besides movies that are supposed to be directed personally at women a dick flick I mean, wouldn't you say that the entire world is dick flicks and that green lighting is done by dicks in the name of flicks and that since there's no women directors to, to speak of, this percentage is so small, uh, the amount of, uh, uh, of, of women directors uh, in writers uh, that make grade eight American movies is, is like the amount of uh, uh, lady comics from India. You know, it's, it's low. Uh, and uh, so uh, I, I always think it's funny when they call things chick flicks. And chick flick always means one thing, too, that there's like relationships that people care about because that's the one thing men aren't capable of in any way, right? <laughs> Somehow this is a foreign world where you'll find your icy, forbidden, obsidian, hideous, male, uh, how many fucking Y chromosome heart thawed. Uh, by the thought that occasionally women don't want to be kicked around and used as like punching bags and, and thought of as a sex object every second of the day when they're supposed to be smiling and pleasing you uh, in all the other movies. And in, uh, what is it? Uh, what's the first uh, uh, Schwarzenegger one where he goes to Mars and his head blows up and whatnot? The Philip K. Dick one. Total Recall, right? Because there's a, the first one with him and then there's that awesome remake. Um, I'm joking, of course. The... Uh, the first one's not so hot either, but he shoots, uh, was it Sharon Stone, and goes, uh, that was his wife, consider that a divorce. And that was, see? Still gets a huge laugh. There you are. If someone uh, cut a guy's dick off in a movie, there would be nothing but like uh, scandalous, shocking, controversial new movies come out that depicts the, the worst kind of violence, that's the kind directed at men. The Catholic Church had been uh, abusing children for approximately since its inception, and possibly before during the meetings getting it together. <laughs> and the one thing you can be sure of is that girls were the first objects of that until about 15 years ago when it was revealed that men were being abused as well. And then the shit kind of hit the fan a little bit. Uh, this has really turned into more of a polemic about the dynamic <laughs> between men and women than the genial setting for another cinematic romp through your hilarious celluloid mind, Greg. Uh, what we've come to expect from the Greg Poops Film Club has suddenly turned into a standing on the corner with the guy who sells the communist worker and hasn't sold a copy in four hours <laughs> and is really angry with you. So, by the same token, Greg, are you saying that any expression of earnest se uh, feminist sentiment 
is equated with only the most foul and angry type of male rage over the most ignominious causes. Is that what you're doing too? Is that the kind of value judgment you've just made atop of your initial assessment to back off of what you felt was a precarious comedy situation and garner the audience's James Curry, their favor in a Tim way? Or... Uh, is this the tricky type of dialectic that you need to set up a complex emotional movie like this that balances both uh, the setting of, uh, of minor league sports against the sophistication of two people who are self-determined intellectuals failing at the craft they have chosen and admired in a life that they may not always want to be in, faced against the prospect of a blistering hotshot who unwittingly because he only has what nature has given him, which is to say no intellect at all but physical talent, which is, of course, the most easy to despise by anyone who possesses any intellect. <laughs> For those of us who grew up loving film, and I'm counting everyone in this room here, who spent a lot of time alone in the dark, possibly wearing glasses and possibly reading about the films you watched, I think you can agree with me when you say... Uh, that uh, when you hear the song you've got to be a football hero you don't exactly get a semi <laughs> there is no moisture uh, and, uh, but, and yet at the same time uh, the, the complaint about sports movies and it's always true is unless it's Bad News Bears which has swearing, day drinking and uh, abusive tweens <laughs> which is the combination for any good picture uh, Little Foxes uh, the Andy Hardy movies uh, it's all good from Diego to the Bay. And uh, the point is, they usually end with a climactic finale where they win, or they all gather together in a room and ruminate in a male way. Unless it's a skating movie, then they get to be girls. Uh, and and the Hoosiers, they do the slow clap and shit, and fucking guys crying and shit. And then, uh, my favorite of all the uh, ad hoc sports genre movies is the original Longest Yard by Robert Aldrich, because Robert Aldrich made two kinds of motion pictures. Unbelievably chest-beating male, um, sp swear, uh, swaggering, you know, sperm pullets running around, <laughs> fucking knuckle-dusting, bloody noses, uh, skeezy, fucking bluffed at two giant guys in organization movies like The Dirty Dozen, Emperor of the North Pole. Um, and he also made the gayest movies of all time. <laughs> the Killing of Sister George, uh, um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and the, Lila, the Legend of Lila Claire, which uh, I don't know how to... It, gay, there's no gay enough word to describe Lila Claire. It's, it's a pre-Tony buffet held in a pink gondolier. And everyone's wearing nothing but chestnuts on a codpiece. And they, they have finch feathers in their hair. That's how gay this is. And Oscar Wilde is being read by... Uh, David Furnish. <laughs> those movies are wild. And uh, The Longest Yard is the, is the greatest of those. It takes place in prison and it has uh, transvestite prisoners do, being cheerleaders in it. And this is in a man's movie that I saw when I was like 13 or 14 at the Hillsdale Movie Theater in San, San Mateo. And uh, when they, they score the final touchdown and they slow time down so that the last 10 seconds play out and you get to see each second pass and each second takes an eternity and the, the actual gun goes off to indicate the game's over but the play's still in motion and of course they score and you know da 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 and whatnot. It was it's exhilarating but 
Like in The Natural, if you've seen The Natural. And by the way, I'm going to spoil every movie that you haven't seen <laughs> that's a sports movie. I don't even yell spoiler alert beforehand. You ought to know if you're going to talk to me that you haven't seen it as much as I have, but you should have. You should have thought about seeing every film in this genre before I took this movie on tonight and before you got here. And if that's your tough, hard, uh, fucking high cheese on the outside. So, uh, in any case, this isn't a movie about uh, succeeding in sports. This is a movie about uh, uh, how emotionally life is a a very difficult and epic climb. What I'll give this movie uh, in uh, many respects is... uh, it dignifies failure in a thousand different ways, which makes it an old-fashioned movie. A Ron Shelton, who wrote it, said he was dining at a Chinese restaurant in Los Angeles, and a guy came over and said, someone wants to meet you. And the guy who came over to get him, to tell him that someone wanted to meet him, was Stanley Donen, the director, and took him to, over to Billy Wilder's table where Billy Wilder went, great movie, kid. Great fucking movie, kid. And uh, he said, that was the best review I've ever had, right? And uh, I think that's awesome. I did meet Billy Wilder once, and I believe I told the story. I said, Mr. Wilder, I'm a great fan of yours, and I stuck my hand out, and he put his cane in his hand, shook my hand, and went, thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> so now my impression of Ron Shelton meeting Billy Wilder. Great fucking movie, kid. I don't know why I have all this paper up here. There's nothing on it. <laughs> this is a baseball movie that has uh, William Blake, Walt Whitman, uh, Edith Piedoff, Thomas Gray, William Cullen Bryant, uh, and the Zapruder uh, film. It includes, it covers a lot of ground, and I think that's why it's such a richly, uh, richly, richly uh, appointed, uh, upholstered movie in the uh, pantheon of furniture that is sports movies um, like all late 80s sports movies Charlie Sheen was slated to be in it somehow but it didn't happen because he was an 8 men out and 8 men out is another kettle of fish I've had arguments with all I'm not going to go into baseball because I'm a big baseball fan but I don't want to lose everyone listening to the show by presuming that you care about sports in any way other than as a motif for this film if I was going to show the Lou Gehrig story, which I wouldn't do under any circumstances, it's called Pride of the Yankees, and uh, I wouldn't show it. it. It's a very good film uh, for crying and whatnot. Uh, Gary Cooper plays Lou Gehrig. Uh, you don't know who either of them are, but it's very good. How does it Exactly. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert on the Lou Gehrig thing. Kind of like Jesus. It ends abruptly. Lou Gehrig is the Jesus of baseball. He played for the Yankees, and his mother loved him, and his mother was his mentor in his life, and she was deeply German, and she spoke like Billy Wilder. And, Lou, you are a baseball player. Go to first and take some throws. And he, uh, uh, apparently, when he got to the big leagues, he played uh, college ball in New York, so he was scouted by the Yanks, and the Yanks got him, and... uh, when he went to the Yankees team, it was the Babe Ruth Yankees, right? The Roaring Twenties. His mother used to bring bags of eels into the clubhouse because that was traditional German fare. And all the players made fun of him because his mom came. But no one would fuck with him because he was 6'4 and weighed 205 pounds. And had played fucking like a fullback at Columbia. So they called him Columbia Lou. Then he got what they call now antiromeral... Thank you. Except you said skenosis, which is even better. And uh, now they think it wasn't. They think it was possible ramifications from concussion. We've, we're re-diagnosing him, by the way, some Amelia Earnhardt distance from his actual demise. 
we're reaching back to, to, to tell you that Lou Gehrig didn't have Lou Gehrig's disease. And as Doug Kehoe, the amazing comic, used to do, Walter Brennan, as his manager, come out, and Gary Cooper come out of the doctor's office, and he go, "Where would he say?" And he goes, well, "He told me I got Lou Gehrig's disease." And he go, "But you are Lou Gehrig." <laughs> that one's a getty if you like crying. Um, the Babe Ruth movie with John Goodman is one of the most heinous affronts to mankind that's ever existed. And the uh, Babe Ruth movie from the 40s with William Bendix is even more excruciating. Uh, the John Goodman one does have one great scene. He's leaving the St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys as a teenage baseball star having signed with his first club. And it's John Goodman at the age of 38 weighing 350 pounds in knickers and a cap. And he goes, goodbye, Brother Matthias. And you're like, wow. Wow. That school lunch program in the World War I era was like Elvis Presley did the programming for that one because who, wow, did Diamond Jim make out the menu? Turtle soup for the first round. Followed by a rich galatine of goose. Half an ox for the third course will suffice with fried potatoes, of course. <laughs> Uh, then, you know, but in those movies, nobody wins because Babe Ruth dies too. But the best part of the Lou Gehrig one, Pride of the Yankees, is that Babe Ruth's in it. And when Lou Gehrig dies and has to do the speech, Babe Ruth was there for real, one. Two, it's only like a couple years later, so he's still there. And they bring him back and have him recreate his part at the last ceremony. And he hugs Lou Gehrig, which is, for you Babe Ruth fans, a rare chance to see the Babe in film action. I'm, I was joking, of course, but the whole crowd's gone quiet here like, who's Babe Ruth again? This is the best part of Babe... Well, not the best part. Here's, a, here's the thing about Babe Ruth, aside from everything. The Baby Ruth candy bar has denied for over 80 years that it was named after Babe Ruth, even though it came out when Babe Ruth was popular. They say, they, and you'll always read this in these correction things, it's named after Grover Cleveland, uh, uh, the president's daughter, Ruth. And it's like, why? It wouldn't have been. It came out when Babe Ruth was popular. They called it a baby Ruth. That's why it was fucking sold, ever. <laughs> even now, his name lives on in a chocolate bar. <laughs> that might be the only way some people even know him. You go, Babe Ruth, they're like, you mean like the candy bar? <laughs> and then a lot of people go, Greg, they haven't sold that candy bar popularly in stores in about 18 years. <laughs> Where have you been going? I've been going to the secret place to get black crows and jujubes. <laughs> Heaths. What was that one? Yeah, jawbreakers. Jawbreakers. Jawbreakers were freaky. Because did you ever get one wedged way in the back? And you're like, fuck. <laughs> right? I don't want them to have to call the fire. Uh, I was going to say brigade, but I didn't grow up. Somehow I grew up in, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory all of a sudden. <laughs> I mean, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. There's a child catcher at the end of the block and whatnot. You know, I didn't grow up with one, but in the suburbs, it always felt like there was going to be one. I didn't hear what you said. Why is it so audience interactive tonight? <laughs> Who fucking empowered you fucking people? Greg Proops Films Club. Not great unwashed film club. Just settle that issue right now. Take me out to the ball game. Katie Kelly was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad. 
Just to root for the hometown crew at every Sue, Katie Blue. Uh, Paul, this, this one, I don't know if it's true. I think it is. Um, Mike Medavoy was the head of Orion at the time. And they wanted Susan Sarandon. They wanted a bunch of people. Evidently, Michelle Pfeiffer auditioned. There's talk about Sybil Shepard, this, that. Kay Lenz, it was mentioned for by Ron Shelton. He wanted eventually Susan Sarandon. And she, um, they thought, was too old. And so the producer told her to wear a tight dress and she went to his office and swanned around on him for half an hour and got the part. I just thought you'd enjoy that part of life again in Hollywood. Uh, there was a real Crash Davis and he appeared on the set and uh, Shelton was like, can we call the movie Crash Davis and you know, can we call the character Crash? And he was like, does he get the girl? And Susan Sarandon again swooped in and saved that situation. If you're scoring out there, the final line is, Bull Durham won... Audience nil, Susan Sarandon with the save. Uh, there's a, a scene that takes place uh, on the pitcher's mound here. There's several scenes that take place on the pitcher's mound here. And that's what I think makes this movie revolutionary in its uh, groovitude. There had been a million baseball movies. Of course, it happens every spring where Ray Moland is a 50-year-old who's suddenly pitching in the major leagues. <laughs> Because he creates a, a substance that uh, is repellent to wood, understand? So when you put it on a baseball, it doesn't hit the bat. So that makes you a good pitcher because the ball never hits the bat. And uh, in the movie, uh, he's hiding from his girlfriend as a major league pitcher. Because evidently the coverage was so scampy in those days, you could travel the nation and win a bunch of games and the ball never hit anyone's bat. And no one thought it was unusual that you were 50. <laughs> In the major leagues. So that's quite a good movie. Because uh, it's Ray Milan. So he's like, I'm going to throw a curveball. <laughs> You're like, this has got that pe- locker room pep that I demand from every. <laughs> oh, I hope she doesn't find out we're in Cincinnati. Uh, and then there's, uh, of course, the... Uh, I've never seen any of the Angels in the Outfield one, but I did see Eight Men Out, and Eight Men Out is the uh, serious one. So I got to meet John Sayles once, and uh, we were at an ACL. This will, this will. Speaking of the Communist Manifesto, I was working an ACLU gig in San Francisco, and uh, yeah, at the Joan Baez room uh, at the uh, (laughs) at the Emma Goldman Hotel there, and we were uh, working in the Trotsky Ballroom, and it was. uh, I met John backstage. I can call him John now because he doesn't know me. And uh, I met him. And, uh, of course, I'd seen all of his pictures. This was some several years ago. But I don't think he'd made that many since. uh, uh, And we started talking. And, of course, I jumped right in with Eight Men Out because, one, I've read the book. I've seen the movie a bunch of times. I love it. You know, that's right up my wheelhouse. Is it a great movie? Do I think it's a peppy, revealing look at the baseball's greatest scandal? It's fun. Uh, I think I don't think the average viewer thinks it's that fun and interesting. There's something slightly missing, I think, maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. Am I wrong, or is it, is it really delightful? It's slightly missing. No, there was no reaction from the crowd. That tells me that, one, no one's seen it in here, and two, um, it, that you did, and you're like, eh, I didn't love it. Uh, there's a lot of straw hats, and it's got a lot of good music. Uh, I see you flirt with some frail skirt and I'm in a purple rage. Yeah, it's like a turn of the century stuff. And, uh, but uh, it's a, uh, you know your show is rocking when you can hear someone sneeze and it sounds like a marble fell into the Grand Canyon <laughs> and Phil Spector was recording it on Extra Echo. 
Fortunately for you, my ego's huge. So I says to him, uh, was Asanoff on the set for uh, Eight Men Out? Elliot Asanoff wrote the book of Eight Men Out and was still alive when John Sales made the movie of the book. John Sales, you know, looks like this, like he was. Oh, Greg, yes, the movie was a very interesting movie to make. And I go, was Elliot Asanoff there? And he goes, do you know who Elliot Asanoff was married to? And I go, no, who is, who is Elliot Asanoff married to? And he goes, Jocelyn Brando, Marlon Brando's sister. <laughs> and I got to meet her. <laughs> and I was like, yep. So um, my friend Mike McShane, who you may remember from the television show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? The English version. And uh, he's in, been in a lot of pictures, in, in, uh, including, uh, and I'm, not, I'm only just picking this randomly, but, but I also I think it's awesome, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, with Kevin Costner, uh, and uh, Richie Rich, where he plays <laughs> Professor Somebody, Phone Bone, or Flute Boot, or some brain, brain drain. I can't remember what his name is, but it's fucking good. It's Professor Green Grang, you know. And... Um, Anyways, uh, he, uh, he was in London and they were shooting Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which, as you know, is the most compelling of all of the retellings of the Robin Hood legend. <laughs> Let's just discuss some of the elements of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the movie, and later the breakfast cereal, which there was a brief breakfast cereal that coincided. It was called Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, breakfast cereal. And it looked like uh, Captain Crunch. But it tasted more like Quisp. And so's uh, Quisp. Thank you. Not Quake. Quisp. Oh. The little one. There's a lot of amending here tonight. <laughs> this isn't Jerry Lewis at UCLA. I haven't actually done anything. Uh, um, the... Uh, sorry. That they uh, uh, they were shooting it right, and Mike was supposed to be doing a Cornish accent. And uh, if you understand, for his, he had decided, or someone had told him, or some reason he concluded to me that Firetuck was going to be from Cornwall, in, which is a particular part of England, and has its own accent. That if you're American, it's very difficult to reproduce authentically. But then you may have noticed during the Robin Hood movie. A lot of the accents weren't what we would call authentic. A lot of people were from the San Fernando Valley part of England. And as you know, the English colony in Covina is an overwhelming source of information for those who would study the acting craft here and ply its trade along these waters of the river Santa Monica Thames. And uh, so you may remember Christian Slater uh, was one of the gang. He played Dude of Melville. Uh, Morgan Freeman was the Moor. Uh, and then uh, Kevin was uh, from uh, somewhere around Tustin. <laughs> but not always. Sometimes he visited the area that Keanu Reeves came from in Dracula. <laughs> the Sheriff of Nottingham will not be the one that will control us. Fear not, my band of men. <laughs> Dude, the sheriff is totally on my dick, and I think he's got choppers. Wow! 
Sean Connery's in it. <laughs> the very end, he came in for one line. That was the day I was there. Mike McShane invited me. I was on the set of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the day Sean was there. He gave all his money to Aqua's Equity. They gave him a million, a million and a half, something like that. And uh, he said, um, Mary Elizabeth Mastro Antonioni was wearing a bag of measly on her head. <laughs> Kevin Costner was robbing him. Sean Connery had come back. He was Richard the Lionheart from the Crusades. He had broken off from the Crusades in the Holy Land and come all the way back to England to attend the wedding of Robin and Marion. A lot of us remember this from the story the first time around. <laughs> I guess they figured it needed a little extra oomph at the end. So Richard the Lionheart took the six-and-a-half-month journey back from Jerusalem, <laughs> broke off fighting the Saracens, <laughs> came back to England to go to this wedding, but he could only be there for one afternoon. <laughs> and uh, Kevin, in those days, that was the action. You'll find that his most delightful role, uh, if you assay all of his pictures, may well be uh, the character that he plies in uh, up, uh, Upside of Anger, uh, Tin Cup, and this very movie, Bull Durham, because he's uh, surly and insouciant. He's uh, insecure and arrogant. He's fantastically human and doesn't try to do the heroic thing. Now, evidently, Ron Shelton said to him, stop thinking about Gary Cooper and start thinking about Steve McQueen. And uh, you have to admit, if Steve McQueen played it, you can see him in a sweatshirt, right? You can see Steve McQueen with dirt on his face. You can see Steve McQueen being wry about his failure and shit like that. Uh, so anyways, Sean Connery comes into the set and this is his line and he's King Richard the Lionhearted and he rides in on a horse and shit and he gets off and he's got a crown on and everyone bows down and he goes, hold, I cannot allow this wedding to proceed. <laughs> and everyone stops and Kevin Costner, whose acting was pretty wooden in those days, just turned and went. <laughs> that was all of his acting there. <laughs> And then Sean went, unless I'm allowed to give away the bride. <laughs> it's a fucking good filmmaking, man. <laughs> Kevin's at his best when he's in this role, I think. So sexy, so fucking indolent, or, or insolent and loose, and so in control and in possession of all the knowledge, but not able to... Uh, control fate and what it has in store. Susan Sarandon is tremendous in this picture. The magic between them, I think, is what carries the day. And in the end, it's a movie about love more than anything else. And it depends on what you love, uh, whether it's the, the game. There's so many lines from this picture that I've stolen and used in my everyday life uh, because they're, uh, uh, they're, they're maxims to live by. And I'll be posting them on Facebook one after the next with little gifs from the movie. I'm joking, of course. Jesus Christ. <laughs> What am I, your older sister? Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck you. Today is like tomorrow because there's a moon and a frog and shit. What the fuck are you posting that for? Why are you posting that? No one wants maxims. No one wants, you know, please. No more memes. No more tropes. No more fucking words to live by. No more crappy fucking shitty philosophical underthought half-baked fucking kitten hanging from a tree bullshit. Could you climb off my fucking rod? I'm fishing for fucking allegorical maxims. And what I'm getting are taut and fucking 
tawdry and trite. Um, you know, when, it, when, you, when there's a picture of a bird on the ground and it's like, failure. Sometimes it's the biggest road. No, you know what it is? <laughs> the ones that really fry my fucking giblets in a pan and serve them over polenta is... The fucking ones that you see that are posters and they're always encased in glass and it's too reflecty and the, and the frame's always the thin gold thing and then there's a mat around it and it's an eagle or people climbing up a mountain or a wolf or a rock or whatnot and it'll be like a big concept, courage or strength, right? And it'll be like a fucking eagle and it'll say courage and it's like eagles aren't courageous. They live alone, they predate, they eat other birds out of the air. That's courageous. If they were courageous, they'd build a fort and invite all the other animals to live in it at the top of the mountain. They would be swooping down to defend fish, not to fucking kick fish out of Osprey's hands and take them for their own. God damn it. It's the measure of whether a man has a cock that's the size of a whip or the size of something immeasurably smaller. I always read them as if I were Charlton Heston. I want you to go out there and succeed. What was wrong? Was everything okay with him? No. Everything's fine. Even when he's being offhand, keep him flying. <laughs> Fucking love, Heston. Have I done the Brokeback Mountain joke? Has nothing to do with this movie that I'm doing it anyway. Only because James Garner passed away. And James Garner walks on uh, like the Indians into the other world. James Garner never stopped walking in this world. He was the absolute measure of flip-lipped insouciance bravado, cowboy spirit and fucking grooviness with that Oklahoma drawl and the dude you want to be the guy you want to be with, blah 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 um, but uh, he, he was such a groovy cowboy actor but I was thinking about that movie Brokeback Mountain which was a lovely movie but if they'd made it when I was a child the leads would have been Charlton Heston and Charles Bronson <laughs> And there would have been no question of them being gay. That would have been answered before the movie started. It wasn't that they were gay. They just liked having violent sex with men. <laughs> because as good as Heath Ledger and uh, Katie Lang were in that movie... <laughs> was a little sissy in so much as Charlton Heston and, and Charles Bronson would have been having none of it. Charles Bronson was born in a bituminous coal pit in Pennsylvania. His acting consisted of a punch being thrown at the screen. His face was a threat to your safety. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Charlton Heston, you may remember. Of course, the children were killed by guns, but my God. 
What if a small child was standing on a doorstep and was bit on the nose by a flying wombat? You wouldn't ban marsupials from taking to the air. <laughs> a woman is like a rifle, a Winchester 30-06 over and under. You don't know what most of the parts do, but in the end you hope smoke comes out. <laughs> and now I give you Bull Durham, ladies and gentlemen. What a picture, huh? Great fun. What a great summertime picture. Uh, a couple of minutes and then we'll go. Uh, two or three things are improvised in the movie. Uh, I was in Montreal uh, last week for the comedy festival and I was very drunk out on the patio at the uh, Riot Hyatt in Montreal and Robert Wall was there who plays the pitching coach. And so I asked him about the scene on the mound and he said um, his wife had said to him two weeks before they were going to a wedding and he went, what should we get the couple? And she went, a candlestick's nice. Why don't we check out where they're registered and see what china pattern they've got. And so he fucking did it in the movie. <laughs> And I said, what about the run? Because it's my favorite run in movie history. He has his hands in his pockets and he goes like this out to the mound. <laughs> what the hell is going on out here? And he said, I fucking made that run up. <laughs> I worked on it. Uh, and then apparently uh, in the beginning when the kid gives him the bat, uh, when Kevin Costner's going, get out of your head, get out of your head, get out of your head. And he goes over to the kid and he goes, get me a rag. And the kid goes, get a hit, Crash. Kevin Costner said, improvise, shut up. <laughs> and the kid started crying. <laughs> Which isn't in the movie, but it's awesome beyond measure that they fucking let him improvise. And, that, and he throws it away, if you recall. He almost swallows it. He goes, shut up, like that. And then is pleased with himself as he walks to the play, like that. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a, it, it holds up, and I think it's fine. The, the things that dated are his costume, the high-waisted khaki pants with the weird crotch, and the green jacket. I think I had one of those jackets, and it had two pockets here for pens. Those were horrible. Uh, also, his shoes are completely unsupportable. And Tim Robbins' sport jacket. And then at the end, when he's uh, wearing the fishbone T-shirt and the uh, 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 double-breasted, Jacket with the Walkman, <laughs> with the Walkman headphones at the end of the movie. All it does is put it in time period. That's all it does. But uh, it was super, it's super eighties in that regard. Uh, there's a lot of high waisted jeans in this movie, and a lot of double knit baseball uniforms. Uh, and they still wore socks, if you uh, remember. If you if anyone's a baseball fan, they still wore stirrups. Uh, even in the 80s. Now, everyone wears their pants down to their shoes. But in those days, people still wore stirrups and, uh, and, and, on, and the different colored socks and whatnot. Um, also, Max Patkin. Let's just have a brief word about him, the clown prince of baseball. He really was. And he played... Uh, he was in the majors briefly. Believe it or not, there were clowns all through the history of baseball, both in the Negro and the uh, white leagues. And, uh, and Max Patkin came from that tradition of Nick Outrock and Al Schatt and whatnot. In any case... Um, I saw him at a baseball game in the 80s, and he was still doing the humor he'd been doing in the 40s, which included saying to black people, smile so I can see you. And uh, I'm, not to diminish, I'm not here to diminish Max Patkin in any way. Let me just say that his comedy was of a period, and that that period wasn't funny when it happened before, 
and that it wasn't funny when I fucking saw him in the 80s at the San Jose Giants game, but uh, from all accounts, golly. Uh, in any case, it's a real piece of history, and I think that's what makes it so awesome uh, that they uh, go into all of that in the, uh, in, in the picture. A couple of questions, and then we'll go. Robbo's moving amongst you, uh, the lying on of hands and the curing of people. I'm impressed by the turnout, quite frankly. I thought there'd be like 14 people and me. Hey, Lewis. Hey, how you doing, sir? Groovy, baby. Um, just some trivia. Um, one, um, uh, Trey Wilson, the man who played the skipper, yeah. um, passed away not long after this movie. And he had already been cast in Miller's Crossing by the Coen brothers. Really? To play Leo. And that part went to Albert Finney. Right. So this guy who looks like, you know, a hayseed and a, you know, back-ass country bumpkin apparently was going to play a real, you know, old-time gangster. Wow, that would have been a great part for him. Yeah, he had a very unexpected death right out of this picture. But you, everyone will remember him from the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple and, of course, uh, Raising Arizona, where he's, uh, I believe he is unfinished Arizona, right? He's, yeah, he's Nathan Arizona in that movie. Uh, he, was, he was a fun actor. Yeah. Uh, one of the funniest scenes in the movie is, I don't know what to do with them. Their kids scare him. And he goes, you lollygagged at first. You lollygag in the outfield. What does that make you? And Robert Ball goes, lollygaggers. <laughs> and it gets a huge laugh still, which is a fantastic line. The other thing is that uh, Shelton had said that um, even when the cameras were off, Costner insisted on throwing people out. Yes. When they were playing the game. Right. When they were playing yeah. the games, he, as catcher, he was, throwing, he was picking guys off at first. He was throwing guys out at second. And evidently uh, hit two home runs while the camera was running, including that one that he hits where he says, if the guy throws me a breaking ball, I'm going to take him downtown. And, if you, and uh, not that I'm sick or anything, but I've slowed the movie down. And Kevin Costner's swing, uh, and by the way, he's a switch hitter in this movie. Hello. Uh, is roping from both sides. Kevin Costner could rake the fucking ball. Yeah. Uh, Unlike Gary Cooper in the uh, Pride of the Yankees when they had to bring in Babe Herman because Gary Cooper evidently threw like this. And everybody went like, oh, you're so big and studly and you had sex with Marlena Dietrich, but you can't throw the ball. But Kevin Costner could. It's Tim Robbins who's the one that you don't look too closely at his pitching. That's all I'm saying. It's funny, but it's not like authentic pitching and shit. Thank you, Lewis, for that. Anyone else? And then we'll fuck off into this good night. We don't have to make this one the longest one ever. We can... We can run away, as it were. Look, there's someone. Women never want to talk to me. Why would they want to talk to you about a baseball movie, Greg, where the women are... And, uh, although it's quite sexist, don't you think that uh, the women have a couple of good lines at the end? And what, the other thing that I think is so gratifying about this movie is that Annie's metaphysics metafuse every element of this movie. And by the end, um, the coaches are reading books on Mayan wisdom, and everyone accepts really readily that you would wear garters and just breathe out of your eyelids. Like, no one objects to this in the smallest place in the South in the 80s. People accept her metaphysics at all times. There's 15 levels working in this movie, and the women's intellectualism and spiritualism absolutely imbues every moment of the movie. And at the end, he goes, look, I want to hear all your fucking theories, but I just want to hang out for a second. And she goes, I can do that too. Like, he doesn't refute her theories, right? Uh, Annie's intellectual um, force, I think, is uh, an interesting part of this picture. Go on, wh- whoever you are. Where are you? Um, there you are. Hi. Uh, What's your name? My name is Rick, and uh, Susan Sarandon wound up with Tim Robbins. Uh, How did that develop in the movie? Well, evidently, they were kind of getting it together during the movie. She claims they didn't get it together during the movie, but other people say that, like, they were, you know, he would, like, be drinking with the cast and then go, like, all right, I'll see you guys later, and then turn his car toward her house and shit. Uh, (laughs) 
they were together, what, 17, 18 years after that movie, Two Children Later and whatnot, and several movies and an Oscar. Tim Robbins uh, directed um, her to an Oscar in um, uh, 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 a long, long, what was it? Dead Men Walking. Um, uh, there's been two women who've won Oscars for playing nuns, and the other one's Jennifer Jones in Song of Bernadette. And the, and the other one, Susan Sarandon, won hers for playing a nun. This is the woman who played uh, Louise and fucking Annie, right? And she won it for playing a nun. Although she's quite good in that movie. Uh, and uh, Robbo was mentioning Bob Roberts, which is an, another quite a very good movie that Tim Robbins directed. Here's the irony, if you will, if there is any irony, or perhaps it's just Hollywood it's served up on a plate. Um, Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon, of course, came on the Oscar program and were quite upset over, was it Haiti at the time? Or was it Guatemalan refugees? In any case, it was something that was going on that they were going to solve. And uh, then later, uh, Tim Robbins won his Oscar for being in Mystic River, directed by Clint Eastwood, which he said was great because they shot in the morning, they stopped at night, and no one cried. Because uh, Clint Eastwood fucking gets on with it when he directs, yeah. And you would think, of course he would. You wouldn't think there'd be a lot of moments where you'd be like, Clint, what's my character's doing? Because Clint would go, acting, you fucking cock. And that would be it. This has been the Greg Proops Film Club. Thank you very much for coming out. Thank you for coming to Bull Durham. We'll be back next month. I don't know what movie you're going to show, but I'm sure it'll be enchanting. Good night, everyone. Hey, hey, hey.